and hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Frazier and Dieter's Business Speed. I'm John Ray alongside Roger Lesby. Roger. Hey, John. Good morning to you. We're eight days from Christmas. Here we go. We've had a great year this year, haven't we? Uh, it's been a very good year. Yeah, a lot of we've had uh, what's well, been a good year generally, but we've had some great guests this year. So, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for bringing in uh, uh, quite a selection of, of really awesome folks. And we got one more to end the year, right? One more. One of my partners, as a matter of fact. Mr. Jim Dawson. Jim is international tax partner with Frazier and Dieter. Jim, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here today and looking forward to um, maybe sharing some insights with you. We're we're looking forward to it. And and your your topic is timely, uh, international business and taxes. But before we get into that, why don't you give folks a little bit of your background? Sure. So I've been doing international tax for approximately 25 years now, uh, actually doing it all over the world, helping middle market companies in uh, not only operationally from their supply chains, but also the taxes that arise from uh, supply chains, helping them set up most tax efficient structures globally. How did you get interested on the international side? It's a funny story. I was uh, a senior in college. I got a chance to take a um, uh, a class in international marketing in um, Panama City in Cologne, Panama, and I got to see what was going on. It was really intriguing, and uh, started my career in the Big Four and was uh, pointed in that direction early on because that's what I wanted to do. And I think the passion arises from getting to deal with different people, different cultures, different business um, uh, methodologies around the world. I just find it intriguing. And, of course, we have different tax law all across the world as well. Yes, and, and I think when anybody uses the term international tax expert, I'm, I like to think of it the way that Einstein did. Uh, He's a very smart guy. Uh, but what he what he did is he never knew a bunch of stuff. He just knew where to get the stuff. So it's uh, it's having a network, building a network. Our sure. firm, Fraser and Dieter, is very big on building relationships, and that ties in very well with what uh, what I've been able to do over the course of my career. And it's interesting, you know, Fraser and Dieter works with a lot of middle market companies, and middle market companies have really uh, driven the growth in international trade here over the last, let's say, 10, 20 years, right? They have. I mean, the middle market is the one that is really the the driving force behind the American economy. And when you step outside of the U.S. borders, you see this exact same phenomenon in every country you go to. It's small, medium-sized businesses, entrepreneurial spirit that really drives the uh, the business world. We're going to get into some specific issues that are going on right now, but I'm, I'd like you to give middle market CEOs some advice if they've not gone international or maybe they've gotten a toe in the water. What are some of the things they ought to do uh, with their advisors ahead of time before they make that plunge to avoid tax problems later, maybe, right? Well, I, I, uh, I have a sign on my office door, and it says, Problems Resolution. And uh, people always laugh. They ask me, well, why do you have that on your door? It's on my door for this. If you do not seek good counsel, if you do not um, 
take the time to truly understand the commitment, not just of, of financial resources, but your own personal time and efforts, uh, it's, it's more likely uh, doomed to have some kind of problems up front. So you can pay us now to help you, or you can pay us a whole lot more later to fix what you should have addressed up front. Sure, sure. And I think you hit on something earlier when you said, even you with your expertise, your background, you develop relationships with other key people to take care of their, to take advantage of their expertise. If you're having to do that, imagine what a, a layperson that's running a middle market company, uh, it really speaks to the need for them coming to someone like you. Well, I can give you a real quick example. Sure. I had a Brazilian company, very large Brazilian company. They came to the United States to do business. Uh, all they were looking for was was some compliance assistance, and they got it at a very, very low rate. Uh, I had an opportunity to come in and take a look at some of the issues that were going on related primarily to related party transactions, transfer pricing. Uh, to make a long story short, at the very end, they had some major, major problems where the Brazilian company itself and not their U.S. subsidiary was doing business in the U.S. and ended up having to pay U.S. tax at that time 35% on tens of millions of dollars of profit. Wow. So what you save them in continued uh, ag- both aggravation and, and lost profit was well more than what you charged them. So you gave them a lot of value. We did give them a lot of value, and, and where the value came in is is that we were proactive and went to the service and presented the um, uh, the missing compliance, had the conversation with the service around those issues, and because we were proactive, we were able to avoid a lot of, of unnecessary loss of deductions and penalties, et cetera. And then, of course, Jim, the, the new tax act last year changed everything. It did. The, the new tax act, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 2017, it changed a lot of laws, but no, no more so than in the international space. So the big, what are the big ones? Just a couple, just to point out from an international perspective. Number one, the U.S. corporate tax rate dropped to 21%. From 35. From 35. And so what has happened is all of a sudden the United States became a tax haven. And so you'll see a lot of companies are looking to come to the United States for a couple reasons. Our tax rate, yes, that's attractive, but the United States has huge reservoirs of capital. And the most important thing we have is people, really smart people here in the U.S. Well, uh, we also have legal and property rights uh, second to none. Second and that's, to none. Uh, that's important for a lot of them as well. Yeah, you'll you'll find that when you go to the other countries, they're very, very curious of how it works. They think everybody gets sued here. Well, we do see some of that, but we do have laws that help protect the uh, the investment. Sure. Well, I mean, the fact that people get sued means they're laws, right? I mean, that's, that's right. That's uh, that that's an outcome of having laws and uh, uh, so forth. So that's the that's the other side of that. But um, but you were just in London, and and you were. To your point about the attractiveness of the U.S. market to outside companies, tell the story about some of the companies you ran into and what the reaction you got from them was. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, so I was in London last week, and we just recently opened an office in London, and it became uh, 
very, very clear to us that there was an opportunity not only for clients that we currently serve, but for other clients that or potential clients that were looking to come to the United States. So what we're really focusing our attention on in London is the tech sector. Uh, there's a lot of London is a spot where there's a lot of tech savvy business men and women, and they are looking to to get jump started. And so they look at the U.S. And I believe at the end of last week, we're seeing between 20 and 25 technology startup companies that want to set up operations in the U.S. Oh, wow. All over the U.S. So it's, it's, it's very, very interesting to see anything from, from computer software to medical devices, et cetera. And it makes sense because we're the largest market in the world. Largest, yes. And so for them to have success, they, they need to penetrate our markets. And what's interesting is is that a couple of weeks prior to that, I was in Milan, Italy, speaking at a, at a conference on uh, global disruptors in tr- uh, the supply chain. And they had the exact same phenomenon going on there. A lot of Italian companies looking to come to the United States to get things moving. That's, uh, that's great to hear. Now, talk a little bit about, I want to get to the U.S. trade war because that's, an, that's an, with China. And I guess people call that a U.S. trade war. I'm not sure if it's a war or not. I'd be interested in your opinion on that. But tell us a little bit about your perspective on that and what that looks like because there's a lot of U.S. companies that have been wanting to do business in China if they're not there already. Well, I think you got to step back and take a look at a supply chain or a value chain. Every company, whether it be a service company or a manufacturer of any any way, uh, shape, or form, uh, they're a part of a supply chain or a value chain somewhere. And so, what's happened is is that if you look at what's going on between the U.S. and China, the gap between what the United States was selling into China versus what the U.S. was given access had given China access to our market, which was a huge disparity. And so many, there were two primary acts. The first one was dealing with uh, steel and aluminum. And they did that primarily, uh, the administration did that primarily in an effort to protect U.S. steel and aluminum manufacturers. Um, That a lot of, they were undercutting U.S. US efforts in that that industry. And it was harming the number one four-letter word, J-O-B-S. That's what it was all about. Because of the widespread, uh, the administration then decided that we're going to start putting levies of 15 to 25% on all types of products. And prior to the recent uh, agreement, first phase agreement that they came up with, there were over 7,800 products, Chinese products, that they, that they were bringing into the U.S. that the U.S. government was subject subjecting to some form of tariff. Uh, what was, what was the, the reason behind that? Well, one of the biggest contentions the U.S. has had with China has been the um, strong word, but the theft of U.S. intellectual property. And as a result, in China, when, when an American company would go to China, they were required to share their technology with their Chinese partner. What would end up happening is a lot of times this technology would end up in a shop across the street and they're making the exact same component, uh, fashion, whatever it might be, and then they were trying to sell it to the U.S. market. So sure. that's been the biggest bone of contention. 
uh, it was very interesting. I was in, when I was in Milan, I was talking about this topic and we were talking about how the, how the, the, the Chinese have, have done this in a lot of industries. We were focusing on three, the automotive industry, the consumer products industry and the fashion industry. And in Milan, which is the fashion capital of the world, it's right. had a major, major impact. In fact, I had one, um, in-house legal counsel of a very large Italian enterprise come up afterwards and said, I just wanted to let you know that you were spot on about what's been going on. Our firm decided nine months ago to pull out of China and we're moving everything to Eastern Europe. And so what you're seeing today is a lot of companies, American companies and others that were predominantly based in China because it was the low cost labor provider uh, now that labor has risen, the cost of, re- of labor has risen along with other costs, you're seeing some industries move out of China into other places. The benefactor for the U.S. has been a lot of these companies have moved to Mexico and into Central America. Why? Lower labor cost and closer sourcing uh, to U.S. Um, retailers and manufacturers. And we see this play out all the time with countries that are predominantly marketing the fact that they've got low labor costs. Uh, India years ago was in a similar position. Uh, Vietnam, Korea, similar positions. Um, so it's it, it's not a surprise. And then, of course, last week we had the uh, the trade agreement signed with Mexico and Canada. Yeah, and you had the phase one deal between the U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. So what what did that mean? So basically – what that did is it helped avert a, an additional $160 billion of tariffs being assessed against uh, Chinese goods. So that helps the Chinese. Uh, most of those goods were, were mobile phones, video game consoles, uh, computer monitors, just in time for Christmas that uh, the tariffs <laughs> would be lower so everybody could, could uh, load up on the electronics. Um, the other, there were two other things that, or actually three other things. So one was the, um, they reduced the tariffs. Remember, I, I said that they had put tariffs of 15 to 25%. Some of those tariffs coming went into place on September 1st. They've rolled back the tariff from 15 to 7.5% on those, which helps, again, get product moving. Um, the big one here to help farmers, and this is very, very important for here in Georgia. We It's a, a heavy agricultural state, but for soybean and pork, uh, the Chinese agreed to, to purchase over $200 billion of, um, of agricultural products focused on, again, soybean and pork. And lastly, you know, I mentioned earlier the, the issue with intellectual property, and China has agreed to relax the rules. We're, we're waiting to see what that looks like. Uh, the devil's always in the detail, but they've agreed to relax the uh, requirement that U.S. companies and other companies around the world doing business in China have to share some of the IP. So we're waiting to see what that looks like. Now, Jim, last week when you were in London, um, they actually had their elections over there. and The conservative party had a resounding win, which would uh, back Boris Johnson and uh, maybe some of his efforts then uh, with regard to Brexit. Uh, can can maybe you speak about that a little bit? Sure, just a couple comments on that. What was really interesting is is the the strategy that Boris Johnson employed. So 
while he was in London, major economic financial center. He spent a lot of time in, in, in other parts of the country going to uh, other cities, dealing with the people, trying to uh, – his, his shtick was is that he would solve their problem. Kind of sounds a little familiar with what we're, <laughs> what we're dealing with here. But what ended up happening is it was a tremendous reversal uh, of the British people looking to more a more conservative versus more of the left-wing socialist type of uh, bent of uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Right, because their Labor Party did, did not do well in that election. Did and not. so the Conservative Party really now controls Parliament and, uh, and ought to be able at least to be in a position to get something done. Yeah, and Brexit, I mean, it's been on, been ongoing for, for a couple of years now. So what you get two schools of thought, obviously. There was those who did not want to leave, and then obviously those that did. And those that did, they won. And so they're real happy these days, and the others are not. So the question is, is how do they go about doing that? There's been a lot of, lot of uh, theories raised. But at the end of the day, what I recall hearing over and over and over again was the British people saying, what we want is we want to be able to be the captain of our own destiny and not rely on other powers to tell us how we're going to survive. So it was very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting from a political point of view, but let's get this to business, right? So, I mean, how, how, if I'm a U.S. company doing business in the U.K. or uh, an international company that's doing business in the U.K., that matter what what how does this affect me uh how, how what do i need to think about as maybe britain comes out of of um brexit i'll give you a practical example if oh, i could sure so we had a, a a customer who was manufacturing auto parts in china and they were shipping all of their auto parts to rotterdam and then from rotterdam they were breaking down the shipments into smaller lots sending the car parts to various auto part dealers all over Europe and in the UK. And so we looked at it and said, well, what's going to happen just with duties? What's going to happen with duties? And it's anticipated that there's going to be duties between EU and the UK going forward. So uh, this was two years ago, kind of looking forward, saying you might want to bifurcate your, your shipments before they get to Rotterdam. Go look at your current distribution channel in the UK, Find a central warehousing spot, lease it, drop your product in there, and you're probably going to save a lot of money on costs. They did that. And so you're seeing a lot of businesses looking at, all right, how will transactions look in the future? What will be the tax and and trade ramifications of those transactions in the future? And how can we do this in a more efficient, tax-efficient way? And that's really where you help clients. Right. That's where we help clients. It's 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 not about a canned uh, idea. Mm -hmm. It is about stepping back, understanding their business plan, understanding where they are today and where do they want to go. Providing them some some alternatives, solutions for them to consider and then arriving at the best solution for the business, not allowing tax to be the determinant here. But what is best for the business in achieving their long time their long term financial goals? You know, you said something there I find interesting, uh, and that people overlook sometimes. They get focused on the tax part of it, not not sometimes to the detriment of what's good for the business. 
Talk about that. They do. The, the number one item that I see where middle market companies fail, you know, they have smart people and they come up with business plans, but they underestimate the amount of time and effort it takes for the, we talk about chief executive officers. I, I tell uh, clients when I speak, CEO does not stand for chief executive officer. It stands for chief everything officer because he or she are, are going to have their hands in the middle of everything. So the time commitment is really, really lost. Uh, and it's very, very easy to see the shiny object out there of being able to go tell your friends, well, I have operations in Italy or Germany or wherever. You really have to think long and hard about this because it's a significant investment of financial resources and time. So we just spend the time with them making sure they understand. I'll give you another example. Tomorrow I have a call with a group out of East Midland in the U.K., uh, they're bringing some uh, fire uh, monitoring t- equipment to the United States. We're going to have a, a conversation around the transactions, both the physical product and the intellectual property, to make sure that it's structured in such a way that it does two things. One, it gives them the exposure to the American market they want. And two, it's done in such a way that it is uh, efficient for the for tax purposes. Well, I mean, that's you're talking about saving people millions of dollars um, in terms of uh, just moving from one country to another or how they set up operations, and it's really important. I mean, we've said this before, but uh, it it just strikes me to hear you talking uh, how important it is to get with your advisor, your key business advisor ahead of time. It is, and, and I think it's very important for everyone to remember that it's really a three-legged stool for Americans going overseas and probably likewise for foreigners coming into the United States. You've got to make sure you understand from a tax perspective, we're talking tax here, you have to understand the federal tax implications. Having a very good tax advisor that understands that, you have to understand the state and local tax ramifications. Too many people – uh, ignore that, focusing only on the federal. And if you are crossing borders, whenever you're crossing borders, things like transfer pricing, movement of human capital, uh, sales tax, GST, VAT, all of that comes Cur- into currency play. Currency risk. Currency risk. Mm-hmm. It all yeah. comes into play. So you just want to make sure that uh, you step back, you uh, take a deep breath, you bring the right counsel in place, whether that be your accountants, your attorneys, whomever it might be, and you get a well-rounded view of um, of the rewards and the risk of doing business internationally. Now, Jim, you spoke um, you've spoken about China. You've spoken about what's going on with the UK and Brexit. Um, but you you spend a lot of time generally helping middle market companies with their global supply chain. You know what what are some of the um, other pieces of advice you would give? Um, folks on their global supply chain? Well, the first thing I would, I would suggest everyone realize that you're part of a supply chain. So in an average car, for example, there's 30,000 parts. And if you go to the National Transportation Stan- uh, Safety Board, they have to produce a report that lists every part and its source from wherever it might be in the world. So we're all part of a supply <clears throat> chain. Number one, recognize that. Number two, it is, t- is taking a look at the components of a supply chain. It starts with the supplier. 
It ends with the customer. But in between there, there's logistics, there's procurement, there's operations, and there's market channels. So you have to understand that as you go through the process of taking a raw material from supplier to the customer, it goes through a process. How do I make that process as efficient as possible? So Fraser and Dieter is now launching a global supply chain initiative for middle market companies. And we are focusing on a couple components within the supply chain that I just shared of how do we help drive some efficiencies in those supply chains for middle market companies. It could be in sourcing. It could be in transportation. It could be on the reverse end of the customer dealing with the um, uh, market channels, customer satisfaction. How can we help them? Because what you'll find is middle market companies are following somebody much bigger than them, and they're the ones that are more likely than not directing them on what they need to do. And so the big companies have the big four and other uh, advisory firms out there helping them. And what Frazier and Dieter is seeing is there's a, a gap, and we think we can fill that gap for middle market uh, companies. Now, Jim, last month uh, we, you and I both were part of a panel there for TAG, and we were talking about some of the uh, the international themes that we were seeing. And you had mentioned a trend, I think, that kind of surprised the audience on some of the countries that you were seeing that were starting to do significant uh, transactional work. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the Chinas and the Indias of the world, but uh, it was some of the other countries that were coming up. Yeah, we're, we're starting to see, um, it's always been there, but you're seeing more of it from, for example, Malaysia, Vietnam. Uh, we're seeing a lot from uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, countries like that. Because what you do, again, you're seeing, you're seeing business profits follow where the cost of doing business, including labor, is lower. And so a lot of them were, a lot of the audience was, really, is that what's going on? Yeah, that is what's going on. These businesses are kind of nomadic in the sense that they're moving to wherever they can, wherever they can get the best incentives from the local governments, and they can turn around and and hire people, train them at a reasonable cost. Yeah, and I found that surprising, but yet we had a couple big international companies in there confirm exactly what you said. So that was very interesting. Yeah, that's what's going on. So it's, it's a... it, uh, this dynamic between um, the U.S., Mexico, and, and Central America, it's about creating jobs, right? Creating jobs and creating opportunities, and, and that's what we see going on. Jim, talk about the Base Erosion Profit Shifting Action Plan. Okay. That's a mouthful. Yes. Tell folks what that it's all about. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, that is and, a mouthful. And, uh, and, and how that's uh, affecting, uh, you know, the game of international tax and business. All right. So, so it, it goes by the acronym of BEPS. And what BEPS was is, is uh, this was, it happened back in October of 2015. It was the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development in the G20. Uh, they had been working for a while trying to address this worldwide issue of Tax, not tax evasion, we'll just say aggressive tax planning, where you had countries like, for example, Ireland with a very, very low tax rate, 12.5% and lower, 
and American companies and other companies were sending their intellectual property there. At the time, it could be deferred from U.S. tax, so they were able to accumulate a lot of cash reserves offshore, not pay U.S. tax on it, and that's the game that was being played all over the world. And so they came up with the with uh, 15 action plans to curtail that type of activity. And probably, I mean, there's we could get into all 15, but probably the one that uh, I would point out as being most important would be transfer pricing. Transfer pricing is extremely important in many, many facets. Most people think it's just the compliance around a report to give to a, a government. Uh, it's It's really about making sure that the cost of intellectual property license, uh, tangible property, goods, and services are being transacted between related parties in an arm's length manner. And so that, that really does have the attention of the governments, the taxing authorities of governments all over the world. That's probably the big right. one. Otherwise, John, I could manipulate my profits so that I have more profits in a low-tax jurisdiction than in a high-tax jurisdiction. Sure. And at the time, the United States was a high-tax jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what you would find, John, is a lot of these companies did not have any what's known as economic substance. Though they had nothing in these countries, no people, no brick and mortar. They were it was just a it was just a shell company. So I actually had this the other day. We had we had a uh, one of my partners said, "Jim, do you know what this is?" And he sent me some papers, and I said, "Yeah, this is from the Cayman Islands. What they're doing is is they." They got on board with the OECD's initiative of making sure that entities in the Cayman Islands, set up in the Cayman Islands, had the proper economic substance. So in the first year, if you didn't have it, there was, there was a penalty of $12,200. If you did not rectify any deficiencies, it jumped to $122,200 in year two. So again, it's an attempt that's just an example of an attempt to make sure that uh, everybody's paying some tax. And I would, I would also advise your, your, your listeners to be aware of what's known as the global minimum tax. This is something likewise coming out of the OECD G20, where what they would like to see is all countries around the world pay some form of minimum tax for, uh, for, for business transactions. Gotcha. Another reason to pay attention to your advisor on this issue. Uh, so as we wrap it up here, Jim, uh, any other advice, thoughts you would have for companies that are doing, doing business internationally that we haven't already discussed? Well, in addition to your advisors, I'd, I'd really take a look at what might be out there from the government's offering uh, some type of credits and incentives for training for reduction in uh, uh, the cost of, of taxes, real estate taxes, et cetera. Really do your homework before you, uh, you plant your flag somewhere. I, th- I think over time, I've, th- there's, there's plenty of horror stories, but uh, what I'd like to make sure everybody knows that if you, if you do the planning uh, and you have uh, the right product or service, uh, you can be extremely successful. More complicated than what you might think, but you can be successful doing business internationally. And the other thing I might add, Jim, is is that the compliance in this area is very, very difficult, but, uh, but there's significantly high penalties associated with 
the failure to report or the failure to properly comply. And in some cases, if I haven't filed uh, the appropriate forms, uh, my statute of limitations has never run. And so I've got, I've got open periods for, for forever, really. And so the compliance is very difficult, but yet very, very important. Yeah, I'll give you an example real quick. I, said th- I think Roger's exactly right. International penalties started at uh, $10,000 and go up. So we had, a, uh, we had a new opportunity with a client, Dutch National, Make a long story short, uh, his prior accountant did not extend some returns that he should have extended. Mm. Uh, and um, that that poor accountant is looking at uh, possible penalties to his client of over $100,000. You know, Roger, every time Jim brings up an example, it's an expensive one. <laughs> and these, Very expensive. And these, are not, these are not billion-dollar clients. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> wow. Yeah. The, 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 the cost of poor planning is pretty high in, in the international sphere, as you, as you just said, Roger. Right. Yeah. Be aware. Be awake. That's, the, that's, that's what I would suggest. Okay, folks, if you're ready to be aware and be awake, call Jim. Jim, how do folks get in touch with you? Well, you can reach me at james.dawson at com. You could call the office at 404-573-4136. And I'll be glad to help you. We have we have offices here in Alpharetta, and um, my partner Roger will always be willing to uh, help you along the way. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. Oh, you're welcome. Yep. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, this has been great, Jim. Thank you for being here, folks. Just a reminder that Business Beat Business Beat is brought to you by the Alpharetta office of CPA firm Frazier and Dieter, and Frazier and Dieter is a national and global accounting firm uh, with offices across the U.S. and, and uh, as Jim mentioned, in the U.K., um, uh, covering accounting, advisory services that include tax, audit, and all manner of advisory. Uh, Frazier Dieter's nationally recognized best of the best CPA firm 13 times. Wow. Wow. Still impresses me. Yeah, it should. It impresses me, that's for sure. That's pretty awesome. Um but most of all, the, the firm focuses on investing in relationships to make a dif- difference. If you'd like more information, go to FraserDieter.com. Well, Roger, Roger, this is a wrap on the year. This is fantastic. I know. The next time that we uh, will be together for a show will be 2020. 2020 in uh, uh, January, and um, we'll, we'll get another Great lineup of guests for folks next year. I've already got a few lined up, so we'll see you then, John. I love it. I look forward to it. Uh, Folks, for Roger Lesby, I'm John Ray. Join us next time for another edition of Business Beat.